Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and Hannah just showed me one of the world's saddest photographs. It's a picture of her looking really lovely, but she then said, look, this was the last picture taken of me before Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It was genuinely heartbreaking. It was the photo I took on the day I went to vote to put on Twitter to say I'd voted. The beginning of the end. Yeah. Still, when I get to vote again... (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I am having a rather wet January. But for good reason. For good reason. And that good reason is Hannah's podcast, The Drink, which you should all listen to. And I'm Jen Offord and no animals made me cry this week. Whoop, whoop. Yep. Later on, we're joined by the frankly glorious Jade Adams to chat about feminism, grief and her show, The Divine Miss Jade. I catch up with Lara Spirit of Our Future, Our Choice to talk about what the fuck just happened. I'm still talking about the Australian Open in Jenny Off the Blocks. And I do Disney's Inside Out. Fucking hell. Throws TV in bin. <laughs> but first, smears, donkeys and uber asses. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are absolutely not putting parsley anywhere near our vaginas. <laughs> So, it's Cervical Cancer Awareness Week. Do you guys remember the Jade Goody effect? Indeed, yes. Well, it seems that many women don't, with surveys showing that screening for cervical cancer is at a 21-year low. The death of the reality TV star in 2009 prompted a surge in women attending smear tests, but reports now show that one in four does not, with that figure lower still in some areas of the country which given that three women a day die from the cancer, currently the biggest killer of women under 35 in the UK, is startling. There are lots of what might seem like perfectly good reasons not to go for a smear. You're busy. Mm -hmm. It's no one's idea of fun. Oh, no. You'll go to the next one instead. Sure. But let's remember there is one very good reason to attend. So if that letter comes through your front door, get it done. We'll be thinking of you. Let's bob on over to Ireland, where all is hunky-dory on the women's bodily autonomy front after last year's referendum. Am I right? No. No, I'm not. A hospital in Dublin refused an abortion to a woman with a fatal fetal abnormality, despite the new legislation. Two consultants certified the woman needed an abortion due to FFA, and yet the board of the Coombe Women and Infants University Hospital decided to delay treatment for four weeks to, quote, let nature take its course. Which is, as Mairead Enright pointed out on Twitter, an old habit that should have no place in the new law. Brid Smith TD, one of two politicians to raise the case in Irish Parliament, said the woman told her, This is not what I voted for. I have constitutional rights. With Smith adding, she's finding it hard to sleep, knowing the condition her much-wanted child is in. She wants a termination. She is entitled to it. This country voted for it. It is the law. The woman said she planned to travel to England for an abortion a journey made by generations of women before her, but which was supposed to no longer be necessary. What, and I cannot stress this enough, the fuck? AIMS, the Association for Improvement in the Maternity Services Ireland, are asking everyone who cares about this issue to email Ireland's Minister of Health, Simon Harris, and ask him to investigate. And that email address is simon.harris at o-i-r-e-a-c-h-t-a-s dot i-e. Eroctus. Though probably wise that you spelled it. (laughs) In some slightly cheerier news, because that does happen from time to time. Shut up. Honestly. A group of activists aiming to expose the hypocrisy of politicians who led the country into Brexit have reached a crowdfunding target, which will enable them to continue their excellent campaign. The group of activists, individually anonymous but collectively going by Led by Donkeys, have been plastering tweets of bumbling Brexiteer MPs on billboards across the country, comparing the current political shambles to... A bank heist, adding that we are seeing the getaway car screech away and nobody is chasing them. Thus far, the guerrilla operation has had limited visibility, with those who own the billboards promptly removing the giant screen grabs of tweets. Tweets such as one by former Brexit Secretary Dominic Raab, stating, I hadn't quite understood the full extent of this, but we're particularly reliant on the Dover-Calais crossing. We're an island. Yeah. At least Teabag had her best guys on this job, eh? Mm Mm-hmm. The group hit their crowdfunding target of £10,000 in three hours and 50000 in just three days. And if you'd like to donate to them, 
or vote on what nonsenses they should be bringing to the public's attention, check out their Twitter feed at ByDonkeys. Prince Philip, you know, Duke of Edinburgh, husband of her match, a nonagenarian dick splash, walked away pretty much unscathed when he totaled his Land Rover. That's good, isn't it? That's great. I mean, a woman in the car he collided into broke her wrist and the royal family's not even bothered to apologise. And there was also another woman and a baby in that car. But who the heck cares about the commoners, eh? 48 hours after the crash, the prick, I mean Prince, sorry, the sun got in my eyes there, was pictured driving a new Land Rover without wearing his seatbelt. The Norfolk Constabulary say suitable words of advice have been given to the 97-year-old. I can think of a few suitable words, but instead I'll just point you in the direction of the marvellous Cathy Burke, who tweeted, Very pleased that the nine-month-old innocent baby wasn't killed or injured by the 97-year-old selfish cunt. Man, I love her. Mm. And it turns out that now Prince Philip might be told to go on a driving course. Oh, I thought you had to retake your test after you got to a certain point. Does you do, and you not, have to have your eyesight tested. Does that not apply to princes? Well, I, th- I think they were saying that he has passed the necessary tests that he needs to. Mm-hmm. Just maybe stop driving when you're 97, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's particularly silly because... You know, a lot of 97-year-olds that might have to drive, you know, because they live by themselves in the middle of nowhere. But I would imagine at any point Prince Philip can say, mate, can someone give me a lift somewhere? And Or indeed just go... <laughs> and, and people will be forced to do it. Uh-huh. So, what are the chances of the next US president being a woman? Who the hell knows? I mean, they haven't <laughs> even got a government at the minute. Oh, God. But the chances are starting to look a little bit higher as more and more women announce their entry into the Democratic primary. Elizabeth Tenacious E. Warren, we already know about, also throwing their hats into the ring are Hawaiian Senator Tulsi Gabbard, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, and California's Kamala Harris. Hooray! I like her a lot. However, most of the pre-primary chat inevitably centres around the old white dudes. In this case, whether or not 76-year-old Joe Biden and 77-year-old Bernie Sanders will take a run at it. And there remains a lot of fussing around businessman Beto O'Rourke, who nearly nicked Texas off uber-arse Ted Cruz in November's (laughs) midterms. The word from Camp O'Rourke is currently that he and his wife have decided not to rule anything out, which could mean a run at the Democratic primary or could mean a foursome with Ted Cruz and Ted Cruz's new beard. (laughs) (laughs) That beard, man. In further news from across the pond, the cynical acquisition of the fight against toxic masculinity by shaving brand Gillette got some knickers in a right old twist last week. Gillette turned its long-time slogan, The Best a Man Can Get, on its head in a new advert highlighting sexual harassment and bullying, among other things, as the brand called for men to be the best a man can be instead. Guess who didn't like it? Can you guess? Can you guess? Can you guess? Piers Morgan. You're right, Hannah. It was Piers Morgan who commented, insert fake outrage aimed at garnering tweets and possibly a TV award here. And some other bellens on social media, including one man who posted a picture of himself alongside his two armed, and I'm going to say under 10 years old, sons, standing around his daughter, baiting Gillette, does this offend you? I'll raise my kids the way I believe they should be. As if the razor brand might be more upset than him should one of his children accidentally end up shooting themselves or a sibling. He sounds like a stand-up citizen. He's <laughs> charming. Does yeah. he have a beard? I think he does, actually. Yeah, yeah well, why is he worried about Gillette, though? <laughs> Get off the internet. Good point. <laughs> Anybody want some good news? Yes, please. Then join me in hip-hip-hooraying Gina Martin, whose excellent campaigning means that upskirting is now a criminal offence. Martin received around 60 derogatory messages within two days of the Lord's passing the bill because, well, bellend's gonna bellend. But let us focus on the good stuff. Nice one, Gina, and a heartfelt thanks for women across England and Wales. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we take the sugar and spice we're supposedly made of and ram it firmly up the patriarchy's backside with the true grit and determination that keeps most women I know standing, or indeed swimming, cycling and running. Thanks to at liver underscore running on Twitter for bringing it to our attention that Iron Man found itself under fire this week when it launched a new event in Bolton called Iron Girl. Now then, uh, for those who don't know, Iron Man is a word that a niche sector of the population regard with absolute awe. And rightly so. It is one of the toughest endurance events on the planet, involving a 2.4-mile swim, 
112-mile bike ride and a 26.2-mile run, or as it's often known, a marathon. And despite the name, it has its fair share of women who have absolutely nailed it. So yeah, back to Iron Girl. Given the name and pink butterfly logo, something similar but a bit tamer for females under 16 maybe? No, it's a five kilometre fun run with a £10 entry fee for grown women aged 16 and over to take place the day before the actual Iron Man proper. Shrink it and pink it and we'll come a flocking, eh ladies? As long as we've not calendared that day off to clean the oven. For fuck's sake. Iron Man has seemingly taken marketing advice from the 1950s, which properly hacked off a lot of people from the tensies. What are we calling this decade? Tensies? Don't know, mate. Let's do that. Tensies, why not? Anyway, 2019 was not happy, and Iron Man has apologised for, quote, missing the mark, and replaced the fun run with a night run open to all and patronising no one. Over on planet, this is actually what women are capable of. Jasmine Paris, a mere woman completed the Montane Spine Race from Derbyshire to the Scottish borders, clocking in at 268 miles in 83 hours, 12 minutes and 23 seconds, smashing the Spine Race course record by more than 12 hours. Oh, and that includes the time she had to stop to express milk for a baby. Shrink and pink that, motherfuckers. I'm actually surprised that it wasn't like a five-mile run followed by a pile of ironing. <laughs> Here we go, Iron Girl. See if you can get the creases out of this fucker. Hi, Hannah here. Just having a nice cup of tea. And wanted to remind you that if you like what we do, you can help support us. You can do that by going to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, where you can throw some readies at us to help us keep producing the kind of thing that you seem to enjoy listening to. And also keep me in tea. Thank you. We, and by that I mean all three of us, so me, hello, oh, Hannah and Jen, hello, are joined by comedian, actress, writer, singer and Bristolian, Jade Adams. Hello. Hi, Jade. Hello. Thanks thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, girls. You're very welcome. This is lovely. So you are about to hit Soho Theatre for a run of The Divine Miss Jade. Yes. What's it all about? Well, it it sort of changed. When I was up in Edinburgh, I wanted to make a show that was just pure entertainment. There seems to be a thing with female comedians that we have to dig around in our pain in order to entertain people and I wanted to do a show which was very me which is just pure entertainment I did the show two years ago about my sister dying that was that show and I had a lot of success from it I've been an entertainer since I was about five years old I've in dance classes and competed and performed on big stages all the way through my life and never trained or anything like that but I was sort of in amateur sort of Bristolian amateur groups with loads of kids going (laughs) doing West Side Story in thick accents (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I want to see that. But tonight, tonight. <laughs> entertaining is the thing that I love to do. So I sort of made an entertaining show. But whilst I was up in Edinburgh and over the months, all of the things that I'd put into the show sort of turned into a bit of a deconstruction of feminism. It was sort of like my look at what feminism is in 2018, 2019 as a working class girl who always felt that I wasn't connected to to that sort of conversation. Because when I was younger, the only people really talking to me about feminism were Spice Girls with girl power and a really simple status because when I was younger I you know my family we didn't sit around tables and discuss big topics when we were eating we sort of you know that's not the sort of relationship I have with my parents so I didn't really know that I could have a conversation about this until I was older and it was during this show that I discovered that I was actually having a bigger conversation about what it means to be a woman now a a woman like me as well uh, rather than the conversations that I've seen that are always you know I can understand them now but as a 34 year old woman but when I was younger conversations about feminism were always so long and wafty and I, I'd get lost that can still happen yeah. oh it happens now I had a 16 year old girl come over the house at Christmas and it made me think to myself how does it feel to be a, a young girl at the moment and you're looking out there because the thing that is really popular at the moment let's look at this really cynically is the empowering woman at the moment I feel like the people that are speaking to the younger generation are still the pop stars I'm looking out there to the pop stars and I'm seeing Ariana Grande and people like Taylor Swift using their breakups as messages of female empowerment whilst ridiculing their ex-boyfriends and then I look at people like Beyonce and I think she's incredible she's an incredible musician she's a great singer but she's the right thing to say (laughs) 
she's incredible but I went to see her show with a friend of mine last year and I watched a woman on stage being groped by her cheating husband whilst mm. the word feminist was behind her and I sometimes think that these images that we want these young girls to sort of be part of don't marry up with what it is they're talking about and I think to myself it must be really confusing to like see someone like Kylie Jenner be on the front of Forbes magazine as a self-made billionaire mm. whilst at the same time knowing full well that her sister did a sex tape and like Kylie Jenner spent £500,000 on making herself look like the way she does what was wrong with her old face what was wrong with the way that she looked before and it's because the world that she's part of is telling her but the conversation that we're having right now is with us here unfortunately these girls aren't listening to things like this they're sort of they're, they're, they're looking at the music they're looking and they're, at Instagram they're looking at Instagram so it's finding smaller ways to send empowering messages like what the Spice Girls did in the 90s with Girl Power because it was really quick it was really simple and it was easy to understand there were five women with all different personalities that sometimes didn't get on with each other they weren't overly sexualized and I and I feel like sometimes that might have been the last time that feminism was pushed in that sort of world I'd say that's the boring underlying message of the show and the other the sort of more comedic side of things is me sort of failing at understanding what feminism is based on these sort of uh, interpretations that I've seen the way you deliver this is interesting. You've got so many different strings to your bow, mate. Just <laughs> I know, like, too many, isn't there? A comic who can belt out a bit of opera and you can dance like a pro. And Did you used to marry people? I married people in inflatable church. I was just on the hustle, really. You know, I, I've always been on the hustle and I'm not related to anyone famous and uh, I, none of the teachers at school. I had a couple of teachers that believed in me and oh, thank God for them. Because education's a merit system rather than sort of teachers being encouraged to see see beyond the way that the the children are behaving. So if you're if you're getting the right grades, then you'll get the attention. And I wasn't the type of person that really sort of responded well to education. If it wasn't for these people and these extracurricular things and my parents forcing me to go to stuff like this, I didn't find out I could sing opera until I was 25 years old. How did you find out? I was singing uh, along to Time to Say Goodbye in my <gasps> kitchen. I love that. And uh, my housemate came downstairs and he went that sounds good and I sort of wasn't like I am now I sort of spent the last eight years since that conversation singing on stage and just doing it and getting better and taking advice of other singers and and just learning on on the job basically I might not have read loads of books in my life but what I have to I've got street smarts if we had an apocalypse I think I'd be okay I think I see I have that strong feeling about myself but the one thing I think is I am quite good at a lot of things but I don't know what it is that I'm excellent at. And therefore, I think in a situation like that, yeah, I could probably try and make a raft from two bits of brick and a bit of plastic <laughs> or whatever. I'd be well up for that. It would probably oh, sink. Lord. I don't have an overriding <laughs> skill that I'm really great at, but I am quite good at a lot of things, which sounds a bit like what you're saying. The world changes so quickly that if we force ourselves to be the people that we think we are right now without ever thinking we could ever change, it means that we'll we'll be stuck with the trend that is now. I sort of try and keep myself as level-headed and be as even as I can. If anyone ever says to me, oh, but you used to think this, I'd be like, yeah, I can just go, I don't think that anymore and here are the reasons why. You know, it's very popular at the moment, I suppose, to have really strong, intense opinions on stuff and sort of put them out there and then that's who I am. Yeah, it's best when you're backing it up with absolute nothing whatsoever yeah. <laughs> they seem to be the ones that really stick yeah there's a there's a lot of positivity in all of your shows though is that a conscious thing life's really negative it's quite hard and everyone and everyone struggles with it and especially we're at an age now where people we love are going to be dying and i don't think that you know people like i i Thanks, i'm so sorry <laughs> You know, I look at my parents and I and I and I think they're older now and I'm sort of trying to make it so I can go back to Bristol a lot more so I can be around them mm-hmm. because they're not in their 40s anymore. They're now in their 60s. And, you know, David Bowie dropped dead. at Well, not dropped dead. He was going to die, but he died at 69 years old. And, and I just think that there's so much crap around at the moment reminding us how terrible things are all the time. And my job as an entertainer is to make people have a nice time. My job isn't, isn't to remind people people that things are rubbish it's to make it okay when I used to look at entertainers when I was younger they were they were positive like you know Dawn French she was just silly people have all sorts of different skill sets and what I'm really good at is making people laugh and some people aren't as good at that so they do the same thing as I do but they do it in a different way and I I I was having a bit of a bitchy moment recently and I was like well you know what the old saying is those who can't do teach 
But I think that the new saying is, is those who can't do preach. And, and in terms of like, you know, I think that we're forgetting what comedy is sometimes. Uh-huh. And, I, and that's why I made this show. I wanted to f- remember the essence of the... Re- and also, I'll be honest with you, I wanted to show the industry what I look like if you put a bit of budget on me as well. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not blow it all on the onstage gimp? No, Rick, my boyfriend, who is my onstage gimp, which is my little my little joke of what a feminism could be if we carry on the way we're going. <laughs> put your boyfriend in a gimp suit and let him do your bidding. Um, obviously, I, I'm being facetious. I don't believe this about boyfriends at all. I think we equality is what I and yet I, you do get to do it for an hour every night I know he loves it <laughs> he, it's really good for him as well because he's been a stand up for 13 years and he's never been on stage before where he's not allowed to use his voice he gets, he gets a little song in the show but he, he's never done anything before where he just gets he has to be silent and he has to make people laugh using his body so it's training for him the university I went to is the University of Glamorgan which doesn't exist anymore that's how great it was <laughs> and I, I got in from failing my A-levels because I phoned up the university and said to them can I still come and they went yeah <laughs> <laughs> I told my dad this the other day and he was like you didn't fail your, a- fail your A-levels and I was like yes I did and he was like what did you get and I got I got a D and I got an F and I got a U that's not I got but, an N if an A is 40% then I would have got 39% so I think it's a way of showing them that maybe you were close you, could, you, you were oh nearly nearly not quite oh, nearly yeah. did it yeah oh that's I mean that's positive yeah at something. least I thought about reading it, and then I thought, no, nah. I don't want to have to read more French novels. But yeah. <laughs> N is also for nah. nah. Yeah. The best yeah. thing about my university was all the extracurricular stuff I did. I, I yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sex and drugs and rock and roll, kids. Uh, I Beer wish it was boys. sex and drugs and rock and roll. It was more contemporary dance and physical theatre. <laughs> oh, I, that's what I call sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. We all rolled around on each other on point. The BBC are doing a series called The Funny Thing About and then various different subjects and Jade has done one on grief and it is warm and funny and incredibly candid. Oh, great. That's what I got from it was just you being open as well as funny. The other thing is your sister dying, she died from a A brain brain tumour, was transformative for you. It was. It allowed you to get attention that maybe you'd not had before and also, she encouraged you to be funny. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. And she would have loved all, all everything that's happened. She would have loved it. And she used to try and get me to use her brain tumour as ways to get out of work and stuff like that. <laughs> what I really love about my sister is that whenever I talk about her, I talk about her in a really real way. There's no sort of romance about who she is. I, like, A lot of people uh, like to paint the picture of, of the dying as this sort of angelic creature who um, who never did anything wrong. But my sister wasn't like that at all. She was like rough (laughs) (laughs) but caring and and passionate and loved who she loved and and would you know fight your fight my battles and all of that and so much so that I didn't know who I was for a really long time because I used to just sort of be I was protected by my sister a lot Um, but the the way I like to talk about her is in this really sort of real way I hope that I get her personality across that that she probably wouldn't have been the type of person that a lot of people that I see now would have liked which I really love like she 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 just wouldn't have been massively popular with people that I now associate myself with. Like the idea of a swanky Shoreditch office like this would have just been mad to her. Just absolute <laughs> madness. It's kind of mad to us, yeah. to be fair. <laughs> to be fair, yeah, it's not actually our office. Talking about grief, I think my talent lies in removing the drama out of a, a situation. My boyfriend always talks about how I can boil down a subject into a sort of a walnut uh, a, a little into into a nutshell to a point where it's, it removes all the drama from the conversation because mm-hmm. I think as soon as you do that it means you can have an actual conversation about it a lot of people get really het up very quickly on stuff and I know that the conversation of grief and dying is a very sort of triggering conversation for people to have but I think that um, by avoiding having those conversations with people you're actually making it worse whereas mm-hmm. if you find a way to sort of communicate with people in a really sort of matter of fact way you can actually help people be able to have a conversation about those difficult things finding humor in in difficult subjects is the only way you can get through them really isn't it my sister's brain neuro uh, sur- uh, surgeon or neuro doctor whatever he's called i used to call, he was so good looking i used to call him dr fuck <laughs> 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 i used to annoy all of the matrons on the ward and i'd make all the other like because jenna was on a ward that was quite difficult because all the women on it were all like near death or like you know there was some sort of really awful thing that they were going through and no one was laughing so i used to be really disruptive whenever I was in there with Jenna. 
There's only one time I don't find the humour in anything, and that's during my period. Um, <laughs> that I literally have just come out of a week of absolute despair, and I don't feel it right now at all. But last week, the whole world was coming down, and it's purely just hormones. hormones. Is this when you started to get sick of your face? I'm done with my face. <laughs> the internet does not need any more of me on it. Like, I don't know how what I've done isn't enough. Like, can't that be enough for, for me to be like Bette Midler? I just don't know why I've got... Like, why isn't this enough? So you're selling the show. I am. It's on at Soho Theatre. I am. Chuck us the details. It's Soho Theatre from the 31st of January until the 9th of February in the main house this year. Ooh-hoo. I have I've done three shows in a, the Soho Theatre. First was upstairs. Second was downstairs in the cabaret room. And they've promoted me into the um, the main house, which is Ooh. incredible. Also mainly because I've got a bit of a, um, let's just say, a wind sequin sign that comes down. You can't really put that anywhere else other than the main house. So I think I've sort of forced it upon myself but I've got lots of tickets to sell they're selling well but do you know what I'd really love is that this goes out and the next day the rest of the tickets that I have for sale just sell oh no pressure yeah exactly on us (laughs) (laughs) oh god and there's a lot of music and singing in there yes I've written music with the chap that wrote Jerry Springer the opera Richard Thomas (gasps) amazing and so we've written some sort of pithy I'll tell you some numbers would you like to know some of the names we've got Perks of Being Fat that's a song uh, we've got uh, Things I Wish I'd Known When I Was Younger which is Things I Should Tell Myself which is like learn how to pay tax you don't need to know how yeah. you grow cress out of cotton wool that's <laughs> <laughs> true it's very true um, handy for egg sandwiches though there's a great opening which involves me getting wheeled on in a throne Basically, I look out there because I, uh, I, lots of people know, I've got a, a, an aff- a, a affiliation with drag queens. I uh, started my performance career in London off with drag queens because it's really hard to get into comedy because <laughs> there's so little work and lots of people to do it. So it's really mm-hmm. hard to get into. So I went through drag queens who are really sort of quite inclusive and yeah, just come along. You know, this one does lip- bad lip syncing. Look how famous he is. I look at drag queens and I look how successful RuPaul's Drag Race has been. And I and what I think when I look at that is, why aren't women looking like that? Why aren't we all looking fabulous like that? Why aren't we like those incredible hairdos and those costumes and those and and the makeup and the glamour and the and and all of that stuff that you know women were sort of uh, you know praised for in the forties and fifties? Like I saw I saw a poster the day that had drag queens and uh, female performers on there. All the drag queens had like incredible ga- uh, couture on, and all the women were wearing like serious black jumpers and <laughs> and like. Um, I just looked around and apart from Jade the three of you were all wearing black jumpers I do apologise navy blue as well we're not on stage right now so the show is everything that that you would get from a drag queen but coming from the mouth of a woman can I ask you if you were a drag queen what your name would be my drag queen name would be Jade Adams no Um, uh, the best drag queen name I've ever heard of is Karen from Finance Isn't it great? Um, I don't. I don't. What did I, did I have one the other day? I can't think of one. <laughs> but I've got another favourite. There's a chap called Julian Smith. He makes my costumes for me. I've got two of them. Another one's Gemma Banks. She does my suits. Um, but uh, Julian's made the gown that I have in this, and his uh, drag queen name is Jackie Potato. Ooh, that is nice. very good. If we're in France, Jacqueline Pomme de Terre. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should sort of only perform in France. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great community of people, but I am. Um, I'm I'm not sort of looking up to drag queens. I want to I want to fill that space myself. And I think that encouraging people to sort of think beyond their means is definitely something that I want to do with my with my shows. I'd like other girls like me to look at this and hear my accent and hear where I've come from and and how I got there and all of that. I hope that encourages other people to um to to, to find their voice. Don't nick my voice. <laughs> Do your own. <laughs> Find your own. We've all got a unique one. But I hope that that encourages other girls to sort of do the same thing. My mum, if she'd have had the right encouragement from her parents, she would be an, a fashion designer now. She makes all my catsuits and lycra. Amazing. She's worked at Asda for 35 years because she didn't. That's what she gave me. Jade, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Absolutely my pleasure. This has been really lovely. Got plans for Valentine's Day? No, me either. Actually, that's a lie. I do. And those plans are moving to a new location as of February the 14th in London. We will be at King's Place near King's Cross and we will be hosting 
the fantastic Dame Claire of Balding and the excellent Sarah Pascoe. Tickets are on sale now, so, you know, get them quickly because they are going to sell like baked goods that are warm. Get yourself over to www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue where you can find out about this and all of our other excellent shows. Hi, I am joined on the phone by Lara Spirit of Our Future, Our Choice. It is Friday the 18th of January. What the fuck just happened, Lara? (laughs) Amazing, what a question. Uh, Yeah, essentially we've had a week of uh, complete chaos. But in the words of Theresa May, nothing's changed. We're still completely unsure what's going to happen with the country. We're still completely unsure what direction Brexit is going to take. All we are sure about is that uh, Theresa May is intent on running down the clock. We've only got 70 days or something until Brexit and people are starting to get really, really concerned if they weren't already. So, yeah, our campaign and, and many others, I'm sure, are uh, getting pretty anxious and working really hard to make sure that we force the issue of having a public vote on Brexit into the agenda. And we think that we're gaining momentum for that. And a lot of the pressure recently, obviously, has been directed on Jeremy Corbyn. We had a uh, letter on the front page of his local paper today, the Islington Tribune, with a bunch of young people's faces uh, and a letter signed by all of them to call for a people's vote. Uh, and he is really feeling the pressure and all of the press, I think, is directed at, at Jeremy Corbyn right now because the vast majority of his members and the vast majority of his supporters would really like him to get behind a people's vote. But at the moment, he seems pretty sure that he's not going to. So we're just working on changing his mind. It does seem like we're watching a drama series in which every night has a cliffhanger and yet every day everything resets back to where it started and all of that fuss doesn't seem to have moved us on any further. Is it exactly. To ask you if you could predict what you think might happen in the next couple of weeks. I could do my best, but I really would advise anybody listening not to take my word for it. I think that, I mean, obviously she's expected to come back. I mean, she's, she's now due to bound to come back with some sort of plan. The vote on that will be on the uh, 29th. There are a lot of people talking about uh, indicative votes. Uh, at the moment, everybody's sort of scrambling to find a majority to something. We've seen that Theresa May has now reached across the benches, or so she says, uh, although that doesn't include Jeremy Corbyn, who is refusing to engage with her until she rules out a new deal, which obviously she actually cannot do because uh, it is the default option, as I think she's tried to explain. And so we really sort of are uh, at a complete gridlock. I think the most likely thing that's going to happen is that we will see Parliament try even more to take control of this process. I think that um, in the end... Norway won't be able to be an option. I think all of the other options are going to fall. And I actually do think that because uh, we will get as close as we possibly can before we have to extend Article 50, then I think people realise the only option that we've got left uh, is to have a vote on it. And I think that's something which will end up happening with an extension, of course, of uh, of Article 50. But as I said, multiple options abound as to what could happen. And I just don't know. We keep seeing that 48-52 figure again. Mm. It showed up in Parliament do you, do you yeah. think maybe we are unfixably broken? <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely, I, I definitely divided. Uh, whether or not that's unfixable, I'm not sure. I think that uh, actually we are going to be able to overcome those those divisions. And I think that, that will start with uh, getting some sort of resolution on this process, which I think will be, uh, I think, a people's vote. I think her deal uh, and any of the solutions that people are, are proposing in Parliament at the moment aren't going to be able to command the majority. Uh, Theresa May's leadership, yeah, contest obviously brought up a 52-48 divide, which I think people found quite amusing, but I think it's very telling of the fact that everybody is divided on almost everything insofar as Brexit is concerned. And until we move on with Brexit, we can't really make progress on any of the, or fixing any of those divisions and, and underlying issues. The argument does seem to be getting increasingly nasty when we see what we saw happening to Anna Soubry and to your man Femi and to Owen mm-hmm. Jones over yeah. the past couple of weeks. Although mm-hmm. I have to say, I, I think... The, the the prominent Remainers seem to be demonstrating the patience of saints, to be honest. Yeah. It must be exhausting, right? Yeah. I don't you know. I think it really is. And I think Femi obviously has been remarkably resilient in the face of, of all of the horrible things that uh, he's had thrown at him over the last few months. And I think that does that does grind you down. But I mean, he says, and I mean, Joan says, and I think we all say that people that say things like that, people that are trying to silence the argument, are even more evidence to the fact that uh, we need to plough on and try and make the case as, as best we can. We are not going to stop saying, and I think Jess Phillips said this, you know, I'm not going to stop 
campaigning for what I think is the right direction for this country because Tommy Robinson tells me that I can't. Yeah. Uh, and so I think what's more important than ever right now is for uh, people like our campaign, the people who uh, genuinely think that they, they care about the country and they want to make a, a valued and reasonable contribution to the debate for them to carry on attempting to do so. And yeah, I'm sure it, it, it grinds on Dominic Grieve and Anna Subri especially, uh, and especially on a number of female MPs because I think we often forget that the burden of the abuse received disproportionately falls on them. Yeah. Uh, I think obviously that's something that's really, really difficult to deal with and is a massive problem in, in politics more generally. It's not just the Brexit debate. Uh, and the more that women and other people speak up and we have these discussions about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and what the police are obligated to do to make sure that people can feel safe while advocating what they believe in is the best direction for this country, then I think the better. So if someone's listening to this at home and is wondering what they can do, what are you suggesting that people who are pro-Remain can do to Mm. apply pressure on the government? So I think you should definitely go to ourfuturechoice.com and go to the Get Involved section and give us your email and tell us what you would like to see to help us. You could donate to our campaign or you could, and this is what many people are doing up and down the country right now, write to your MP. We really have spent the last 12 months lobbying them directly and many of them have said just how much of a difference the correspondence that they've received by email or letter from their local constituencies has been. So I think if you have a strong opinion on this issue, you absolutely have to get in touch with your local MP. It's really important. Many of them will claim they've made up their minds, but I think still are maybe likely to change their minds. Yeah. And in the next few, in the next few weeks, their resolve, their resolve really will be tested and they really will be forced to make difficult decisions and come down what on one side or other of the argument and if you do think that this country deserves a say on how Brexit proceeds if you do think that politicians uh, have messed this up irredeemably and they are not going to be able to sort out the mess hereafter then you should absolutely tell your MP that that's what you think and, and hopefully they will hopefully they will listen thanks so thank much you. for your time Lara it's always great to talk to you thank you Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we're hitting a birdie in the face of the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. And over in Melbourne, the Australian Open continues. Joe Conta got knocked out in the second round by Garbanier Muguruza, but can leave with her head held high after putting in a solid fight and playing some absolutely fantastic tennis. She obviously didn't benefit in the draw by having dropped so far down the rankings that she went into the tournament unseeded, but as I said in last week's episode, let's look forward to Wimbledon. A big talking point from that match, and a few others, was the policy on timing at the tournament. Basically, in their wisdom, the Australian Open have decided not to bother with a cut-off point for play. So at Wimbledon, for example, you'd expect play to have concluded by, I don't know, say 10pm, if not earlier. And that match, if it hadn't finished, would run over into the next day. Uh-uh, says Oz. Contra and Muguruza didn't even start playing until after midnight Australian time, which is clearly a bit of a nonsense, given that they'd have been prepared to go on at about, I don't know, 8pm. I mean, that pissed me off, to be fair, and I'm not an elite athlete with an extremely regulated body in terms of eating, resting patterns, etc, etc. But anyway, moving on from that. We're well into the tournament now, and as I record this, there are two quarterfinals down, and if you're listening to this on Wednesday morning, you may know the outcome of the remaining two quarterfinals. Petra Kvitova, who you may remember, I gave you the nod about last week, said don't rule her out. She threw to the semis in which she'll play unseeded American Danielle Collins. And if what I want to happen next does indeed happen, it'll be Serena Williams against Naomi Osaka in the other semi-final. But then I'll be a little bit torn because I have a lot of time for them both, and they're both playing really, really well in the tournament. On balance, I mean it's not on balance, I've made absolutely no secret of this, I just want Serena to get her 24th title, and I mostly want to see her do it in Australia, at the home of Margaret Court, who holds the record. Margaret Court, who you may remember, has said some pretty interesting things about the LGBT community in recent years, and who, of course, holds the record of the pre-open era. That's pre-open, Yeah. To my mind, but apparently not CNN, Serena doesn't really have anything left to prove. And I'm referring there to an article published by CNN last week, in case you've not seen it, asking if Serena could finally take her place in the history books. (sighs) Size forever. I am so bored of all the discussion around Serena that is not about how good she is at tennis. Like about her kit for the tournament, the Serena Tard, I don't know if you've clocked that. That's sparked a lot of conversation 
like about how intimidating she is to poor wee 18 year olds like about how she's nice now because she's a mother or whether or not we've forgiven her for her outburst at the US Open final I mean I could go on but I won't how about she's just really fucking good at tennis and that's her job after all so good meeting guys well done Let's end on some good news, shall we? And unbelievably, we find that news in the world of golf. You know, the ones who think women get so sweaty at the sight of some plus fours that they can't be allowed in various clubs. I digress. Well, the Ladies Professional Golf Association has announced a new partnership to establish a new contest with equal prize money for men and women. Fancy that! Not just that, they'll play on the same courses on the same week. Well done, golf. Well done. That's all from me this week. Please do drop me a line on the twits if you fancy it. I'll be tweeting it under the guise of at Inspirogen. You are welcome. Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixed Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspirogen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there, look forward to having a natter. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, are you all right? Mm. What? Oh dear, what Disney did you do this week? Oh God. This week, I did 2015's Inside Out, which has a great cast. Amy Poehler, Bill Hader... Phyllis Smith, Richard Kind, Mindy Kaling. I'd seen this about two years ago. I was at my mum's house. My nephew was there. I think somebody bought him for for Christmas on DVD or something. And we sat down and we watched half of it. And my mum and I decided to go and do the washing up instead because that was actually preferable to watching the rest of the film. And... I have been leaving this to the end because I couldn't bear the thought of watching it. That said, this has the highest score of any animated film on Rotten Tomatoes. It's number one in Rotten Tomatoes' list of best animated films. So I thought there's a possibility that I had misjudged this. We said last week to Jen that that was a film of two halves and she'd only seen the first half. So I thought... Zootopia, yeah. And now I've watched it, I realised when I said it was quite shit, I actually had misjudged it. Because it's not quite shit. It is total, <laughs> awful nonsense. I didn't give you the opportunity to say, have you... Hannah, did you like it? <laughs> <laughs> did you guys watch it? Yeah, I did. I, I did watch it. I fucking hated it. Yeah. I was underwhelmed, I'd say. Underwhelmed is quite positive, yeah. I would say. Have you been voting on Rotten Tomatoes? Because <laughs> I don't know where those votes Constantly. have come from. I will say I was cooking my dinner at the same time, so I didn't give it the most attention I could have done. And I'm pleased about that, as it goes. I can't even be bothered to do a plot summary of it because the plot is unnecessarily complex, really, in order to give a message out which tells children that it's okay to be sad. Sometimes. Sometimes. And I would rather have watched a film where somebody walked onto the screen at the start and said, hey, kids, it's okay to be sad sometimes. And then just watched a proper decent film with Amy Poehler, Bill Hader, Mindy Kaling, Richard Kind in. Okay, so it takes, just for the sake of argument, it takes place in the head of a little girl who is called Riley. She's 11. She's grown up in Minnesota. Her parents have moved to San Francisco. I think her dad has a new job, although that is a, sort of seems to be a little bit vague. It's a startup. They're looking for money to put in the startup. Mm. Yeah. Investment. And she is not very happy by the move, obviously, because it's difficult to move house and move away from your friends. And also she's, like, moved climate from what was quite a snowy place and she was into ice hockey. Inside her head, there are a number of emotions. Five, in fact. Joy, played by Amy Poehler. There is rage, played by Lewis Black. Fear, played by Bill Hader. Disgust is Mindy Kaling. And there is sadness, played by Phyllis Smith. Who, if anybody doesn't know who she is, she played Phyllis in The American Office. And she's absolutely cracking. And basically, Joy cannot cope with the fact that Riley is sad. 
And there's just this ridiculous plot that takes place inside the child's head, goes on for seemingly ages, and then they get to the end and decide that it's okay to feel sad sometimes. Now that, you might be telling me, is a positive message. And I have seen people I, whose opinions I respect saying that this is a really good film because it has a really positive message. But I'd like to point out it doesn't have a positive message because sadness is a fat woman in glasses. And therefore... Is that like Peanuts Happiness is a warm puppy? <laughs> yeah, or uh, Hamlet's Happiness is a cigar. Yeah, sadness is a fat woman with glasses. So yeah, it tells children that it's okay to feel sad sometimes. But don't forget what sadness actually is. I think I'd have preferred to watch a public service broadcast. You know those ones where like kids climbed a pylon? Because mm, at least you can take the piss out of that. Yeah, and then maybe one kid would fall to, I don't know, it'd end up in hospital and it'd just say, sometimes you get sad kids, deal with it. Mm. I'd have watched that. I'd have enjoyed that more. Sadness is my favourite character in it, though. I think Phyllis yeah. yeah. is amazing in it. She plays the character quite often for lols, which is, yeah. is good. Mm-hmm. But I am I am struggling to find positive And this to is going to be short it. on lols, this review, because I, I can't be bothered to write jokes about something that is so, again, self-congratulatory. Hey, isn't this a really great message we're sending? You and I have talked about this briefly before, Mickey, and you had a point to be said about the oh. gender of the emotions. Oh, yeah. So at some points, you've got these five key emotions that are controlling how the person whose head they're in feels and how they react to situations. And so the theory is all of us, all of the characters have these five emotions in their head. And at some points you dip into other people's heads. So you go into a dad's head and they've all got moustaches, right? Because a dad's got a moustache. No, 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 it's it's a thing. That's Carl McLaughlin, by the way, who plays her dad. Yes, it is. Fun fact. And... So they've all got moustaches and they are all men because it's in her dad's head. And you bob into her mum's head as well and, and they're, they, I don't know, have, have they got a characteristic? Who cares, she's just a woman. But they're all women. They're all women in her head. Yet in Riley's head, there are three women characters, sadness, joy and disgust. And then the other two, anger and fear, are blokes. Now, given the way they're portrayed in everyone else's head... My theory is that they just didn't want to use all women voice actors. Yeah. Mm. They've not been consistent with like, oh, maybe it's a mix of voices and you hear stuff and, you know, gender, like fluid or whatever they were trying to do. But it's, it is surely just because they wanted to have some male voice actors in there. Yeah. And that's I think fucking so. annoying, isn't it? Mm. And there's, there's also a lot of stuff that's really manipulative. I mean, apparently they spoke to some guys at... Berkeley, which is a good university, I'm led to believe, to make sure that it was accurate from the point of view of how emotions work and all that. I mean, to be fair, it did prompt a lot of emotions in me, you know, boredom. You were mainly Louis Black, though, weren't you? Anger, yeah. Full on rage at points. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on in it that actually doesn't make any sense. And there's a plot line, including her imaginary friend Bing Bong Bing Bong mm. who has been forgotten and then you get forgotten in this and then you get really forgotten and this is really like emotionally manipulative scene in which he fades away to dust spoiler alert hang on there's a fat woman in glasses telling me to cry <laughs> what that- emotion are you experiencing right now Hannah oh, just oh. nausea is that an emotion no it's not is it but the point is That's not how memory works. Even if you forgot him, the point is he might not be gone forever because at some point you can have a conversation with your mates in a pub and they're going to go, did you have an imaginary friend? And you're going to go, oh yeah, bing bong, I haven't thought about him for fucking years. Bing bong. Oh yeah. Some weird cat, elephant, dolphin, um, crazy dolphin thing with a truck. Yeah. You know, that's Richard Kind and he's doing a really good job in it and he's really funny. And like you say, Phyllis Smith, there's a couple of bits at the end that genuinely possibly would have made me lol if it had been in any other film, but by this point I was done and I hated it. <laughs> and one of them is when she meets a boy and she says hello and you go inside his head and they're all running around screaming because the girl's talking to them and they don't know what to do. And then there's another bit where everything works out fine in the end. And there's this, like I say, ridiculously complex series of 
lands within her head mm. and then the old lands die and some new lands come up and you hear sadness say, I like tragic vampire romance land. <laughs> and that made me laugh, but I kind of resented having to laugh at it because I just thought this film was dreadful. I thought something about it. Big news. Shoot offered. I felt quite conflicted about this, actually. I thought it was quite interesting as a concept to sort of explain to kids maybe sometimes you feel things, like in terms of mental health or whatever, Mm -hmm. maybe sometimes you feel things and actually they're a little bit beyond your control because there's, like, chemicals and shit that are doing stuff, right? Yeah. So I thought that was quite an interesting message to try and, like, sell to kids who, you know, maybe don't understand shit like that that well. But then I thought... It's not very empowering, is it? Because it sort of suggests that you have absolutely no agency over the way you feel. So in theory, you could be watching that as like, you know, a seven-year-old or whatever and just being like, well, it's just rage in my head, isn't it? The voices in my head will sort it out at some point. I just thought it was, I don't know, I thought I, I felt a bit conflicted about that, actually. Also, it had that thing where, like, it seems to work on the principle that there's like a base rate of normal and that anybody watching this will exist at that base rate mm. of normal. Yeah. So it's kind of like there was a bit where she sees her parents rowing and she freaks out. Now, she's 11. I would imagine a fairly high percentage of 11-year-olds have seen their parents rowing. But yet that was seen as something that she shouldn't be able to cope with. Whereas if what you're trying to reach is children who possibly do feel a bit sad, if a child has lived an incredibly normal life, the chances are they aren't the sort of children that will have had sadness in their life. Yeah, and the flip side of that, actually, interestingly, Han, is that when she says to her parents, I can't always be your happy girl... Fucking parents are putting that pressure on an eleven-year-old. Mm. We've never seen Riley upset before. Yeah, uh, that's a weird family dynamic. Mm. Yeah, social services. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> well, normality is joy, isn't it? Joy is the normal, basically. That's how it's presented to start off with. I was going to say, I st- thought you meant like just in, general. in life, and I thought, <laughs> no, oh well, God. no, I think like the opposite of life. Yeah. But yeah, that's her status quo, isn't yeah. it? I was told that's Riley's status quo. Is yeah. She's just this little happy girl and. You know, but that um, isn't normal for most people. No, and to be honest, if my joy was as fucking irritating oh, as Amy Poehler was Gergie. in that film, she is Gherky. <laughs> Put her in a bin, hit it with a spoon. Um, <laughs> what score are you giving it? <laughs> I am giving it one. Still got one. Mm. Yeah, well, it's not Pocahontas. <laughs> that that is the benchmark. It's not racist. It's not actually, is it? No. Oh, well, I've well, got Disney. one thing, right? Yeah. It's not racist, so it gets one. One what? One fat woman with glasses. Because that's sad. <laughs> oh, God. Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 